What if the speed of light was 30 miles an hour? What if Earth had two suns? Which cereal mascot would win in a what fight? What if everyone lived underground? What if, it rained what if money grew what on if trees? What if pigs could fly? I don't know if that would actually happen. It's much easier to store a unicycle than to store a horse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, today we are tackling a question that is very near and dear to my heart. What if people didn't need to do things? Because, boy, do I hate doing things. <laughs> I don't want to do I anything. I never want to do anything. I want to live on the couch and consume all the Netflix, all just end-to-end, -end, like a human centipede of viewership. But I can't. I have to do things. But that's not exactly what we're doing. We're not exactly we're not gonna explore the wonderful world of no responsibilities. This episode is gonna be one of our grab bags, which means instead of doing one specific question, we're gonna break this one up into three different questions, each covering a different, very important thing that we no longer have to do. Yeah, the things are essential, basically. <laughs> yeah, these are the things that even on the couch you do need to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna go ahead and get us started off and the one i'm going to cover is what if the thing that you didn't need to do was eat and drink what if you didn't have to eat or drink at all finally about two-thirds of the way through prepping for this answer i realized we kind of did this question once before and by kind of i mean literally an episode 108 but i forgot we had done that and i was already too deep and i have a totally different answer so this is extra bonus content for all, that, all three of us didn't realize that we had already done it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about it like a bunch and then i was like oh i have some research from back when that's kind of hitting on this topic and i checked i'm like wait god dang it but anyway <laughs> if you want to know some other answers of, of if you want to hear more about this question after i'm done um in episode 108 we covered kind of like how civilization how civilization would develop differently um the food chain and dead animal bodies and some farm economy stuff is what we did in episode 108 but this episode what i'm looking at is population because one of the things that we have to do is eat and it's really a very big part of existing and being alive on the planet farming is pretty damn cool so the scientists of the internet like to use the term carrying capacity for basically how many humans can live on the earth before you hit your peak and you can't support them and you can't really make it past that number because if you add more humans they'll just die of starvation and whatnot before you ever get your population up and so before farming, the carrying capacity for human life on Earth was 10 million people. So once you got past 10 million humans, we no longer had the ability, there wasn't enough resources around for us to, you know, consume and stay alive on the planet. Now, with our fun farming infrastructure and all the good things that we do, we can feed 10 billion people. But with this question, there's really no limit to how many people you could have because you know one of the biggest things the hardest thing for us to do is feed them all and if we don't have to feed them well what's stopping us from having lots of humans my first thought was the poop problem because you know one of the limiting factors of cities as they grew was if you put a lot of people all together you got a lot of poop and it was actually a real problem for these ancient cities before they really established like all these sewage systems people would literally just poop on the streets and it would just pile up and then it would be you know, nobody wants to live in the city anymore. And horse poop. 
Yeah, then the horse poop too, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I covered this in a previous uh, episode as well. I don't remember what episode, but they had a whole meeting about it because they couldn't expand their cities anymore. So they like tried to come up with a solution and they had this like day-long meeting and they came up with nothing. <laughs> yeah, so poop problem's a real problem. But if we're not eating or drinking, I don't think we're pooping. What would, what would the poop be? So I'm saying it's not a problem. And, you know, as far as the population goes, the other thing that's not really going to be as big a deal is that we're probably going to have, you know, statistically reduced, like, heart disease, obesity, all the stuff that eating unhealthy does to you. If we're not eating, I'm assuming everyone just kind of ends up, you know, generally healthy from a food perspective. So that's also going to bump the population up a little bit. So I started looking at, okay, so how fast is our population kind of going to expand? We don't need, we don't really need natural resources. Is the sky the limit? So to kind of get an idea of how much we expand, I looked at the last few hundred years where the Earth population has actually exploded. What do you what do you guys think the Earth's population? Keeping in mind that it's what eight now. I think we've I think we've crossed eight uh, eight billion. Nineteen fifty. What do you think the Earth population was in nineteen fifty? Nineteen fifty. I'm going to say. I have a number in mind. I'm hoping you don't steal mine. I'm going to say six billion. I'm going to say 2 billion. Ben, you win a prize. 2.5 yes. billion people in 1950. <laughs> in the last 70 years, like modern times, people were alive before, you know, this, that are still going strong right now. The Earth population has more than tripled since 1950. Like, that's crazy. And so, of course, I'm like, wait, are we just going to blow up the world now? Are we just going to like go from, because it's exponential growth, so are we going to go, you know, if we went from 2.5 to 8, are we going to go from 8, you know, to 24 billion in the next few years? And the answer is actually no. The biggest factor of why our population is so much higher right now than it was before is actually infant mortality. Um, It's not that people are just having so many more babies or that it's just like, you know, natural exponential growth. It's that babies are no longer dying at the ridiculous rates they were like in the 18, you know, really all the way up through the 1800s, up through that point before, you know, I'm going to call modern medicine, the average woman would have six kids, but four of them wouldn't make it to adulthood, which sucks. And if you ever think of time traveling living in the Middle Ages, keep that one in mind. Now women have an average of about, you know, the suburban two and a half kids or so, and they tend to make it to adulthood nowadays. So the population stays pretty steady because you have a couple that makes 2.5 kids increases a bit. So the population keeps increasing as the surviving children get older and older. But by 2100, the UN estimates the world population will be about 11 billion, but then plateau and kind of just stay there for, you know, indefinitely almost. I thought you said our food supply can only support 10 10 billion. Well, hopefully in the next 100 years, we will get a little bit more efficient at farming somehow. That's the next generation's problem. (laughs) I mean, it was also, they also made the point that we can feed 10 billion people, but we're only barely feeding, you know, eight and people are going hungry. So what about the extra 2 billion people worth of food? And that's an all inefficiency and the whole nother topic. Anyhow, so theoretically, real world, it's going to kind of cop at 11 billion. But I suspect people might be having more kids in our no eat and drink world. Because if you don't need to feed the kids, kids are really going to be a heck of a lot easier to take care of. Like, all a baby does for the first few bits is just eat and sleep and if you if you take away the eating bit that's like a lot of the effort and it's going to be significantly cheaper you know i imagine there's lots of families that are you know want another kid but it's just not financially doesn't make too much sense and they won't poop no diapers yeah exactly like no diapers like that the whole poop cleanup the eating's gone literally they just have, you just kind of put them down and let them exist until they're bigger and besides sleeping there's really not much else you have to make sure your kid does at that point 
So how much cheaper are kids really? So the cost of a new child, according to the USDA report, uh, recently came out, food costs takes up about an estimated 18% of the cost of raising a kid, which is actually kind of a little bit less than I thought it was. They got some weird numbers in here. They have 16% for childcare. They have 15% for transportation. And they have the biggest number, 29% for housing. Um, and 24% is other like healthcare, personal stuff like that. So housing, food, childcare, and transportation. So food, obviously, Zippo, Gonzo, 18% gone right there. The other one is housing. Because I want, I want to take a look at housing for a second. Because what I did not realize is exactly how much of the world we're using up for farmland. 38%, nearly 40% of all the world's land, period, like just the world's land surface area, 40% of it is used for farming. That's crazy. That is so many, many acres of farms. And with that, like, not only is we get that 40% of land back to build, you know, extra suburbs and all that, if you don't need to go out, like, shopping and all this stuff all the time, there might be less incentive to live, like, near major industry because you don't really need to go out consistently to get anything really to survive and i think a lot more housing options kind of pop up with that so i'm thinking housing's gonna get cheaper food's gonna be free child care and transportation or whatever i'm not sure how much i believe those usda numbers i mean there were some really smart people that did a whole lot of work but i read it on the internet so i get to have my opinion too <laughs> and then uh you have all these housing options popping up but it kind of got me thinking if you don't need these kinds, like, if you don't have these basic needs, like, food is our biggest basic need as a consistent cost, and housing is cheaper, but it, it is, I'm gonna say with a big asterisk that housing is optional. So if you don't, like, food and housing, if you don't need those costs, food, like, you have a legitimate option to simply not take part in the economy. You will not die if you do not ever make any money. If you can live in, like, a temperate climate, you have kind of minimal housing needs. If you are comfortable being like either a bit nomadic or, you know, camping forever, and that kind of floats your boat a little bit, you don't need to buy anything or, you know, maybe work a couple, you know, work for like a month every once in a while to make a little bit of like small cash. But you don't have to actually be part of the economy because you don't have this like constant oppressive, oh, I need to eat like three times a day thing going for you. Also, you don't need a house for a bath. You don't need a bathroom anymore. You don't need your own bathroom. That's nice. You know, that's one of the main things that having, you know, your own space is good for. And you don't need a kitchen. You don't need a fridge. You don't need an oven. You don't need a freezer. You don't need any of those stuff. So really what's left in your house that you're using is like your bed and storage. Like there's not much else that your house is doing for you besides being a place to store your things and sleep. So kind of simply back, I think people are going to have more kids. It's going to be a lot easier for people to, like, get houses or live these kind of nomadic lives. So they're just going to be able to spread out and just more densely populate everywhere. So now we're going to have more and more and more people kind of explode that population. And so circling back to the very beginning, what kind of resources do we depend on? What, what, what do we need if we're not fighting over food and water and all that? And I think the biggest one is going to be energy. Because as much as we don't need all these fancy restaurants anymore we do all need to charge our iphones and get all the good entertainment and that power has got to come from somewhere uh, we definitely cannot use fossil fuels for an extra giant population because already with our current population it's no good if we just triple our output for fossil fuels we're going to die very very quickly so we do have to turn towards the green alternatives and really the most consistent is going to be solar 
so what limits our access to solar power? Is it all good and great? Kind of, sort of, in that we're not going to run out of sun, but we might run into some bottlenecks on actually producing solar panels. Um, that production bottleneck is going to be silver. Uh, solar panel actually consumes about 11% of the world's silver production. So if we start scaling up our solar power, I'm going to say drastically, we barely use the crap, so it's going to be a lot, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be quite a bit of competition for the world's silver. So what countries will be invading for their silver mines? Which countries will be the motley crew from World War III? It's going to be Peru, Bolivia, Mexico, China, Australia, Chile, Poland, and Serbia. Which I could not have picked a more disjointed group of, like, nine countries. So it's going to be a weird World War III, guys, but it's going to happen. So, yeah, if there's no, if we don't got to eat, we got to invade Mexico. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what did, you, uh, what did you do? What don't we have to do? So my, my thing that I don't have to do is sleep, which is, like, sort of something that I really wish was real. Because I don't like, well, I, I enjoy sleeping, but I wish I didn't have to waste that time sleeping. Because obviously you get a lot more time. And a lot of people actually agree with me on this. There was a survey from Sleep Junkie. They surveyed more than a thousand Americans and 65% said that they found not having to sleep desirable or very desirable. 17% were neutral on it and 18% for some reason were undesirable or very undesirable. I don't know why you would say that's undesirable, but People like sleeping, or people don't want to work another eight hours in the day. <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's true, too. In my mind, it's very obvious I want this to be real. But it is a little different if you look at it in the perspective of everyone. If it's not just me, and if everyone doesn't have to sleep, it's a little different. So I looked into that, and first I looked at the time aspect of things, because obviously you save a lot of time. So I'm just going to say that people normally uh, sleep eight hours a day, so... If you sleep eight hours a day, that means you save 56 hours a week, which is more than a work week, and you save 2,920 hours every year, which is obviously a lot of time. But there are some other factors that go into this. So one of the factors I want to look at was metabolism, because like in my mind, when you're sleeping, metabolism goes down and you burn calories uh, slower. So there is a study that was published in 2010 that looked at metabolism during sleep. And they talked about something called energy homeostasis, which is basically calorie intake versus calorie expenditure. So like making sure that like it's the amount of calories coming in is equal to the calories going out or getting burned. And this is regulated by hormones. So there's a hormone called leptin, which inhibits hunger. And there's one called ghrelin, which promotes hunger. Now during sleep, both leptin and ghrelin rise, uh, but then near your the end of your sleep cycle, ghrelin drops and leptin stays elevated. So you have more leptin than ghrelin. That means that you're less hungry. And in this study, they also looked at people that were sleep restricted. So they made people sleep a little less. And what happened is that there was a drop in leptin and a rise in ghrelin. So they're more hungry. Now, this might just be like a result of us of of people actually needing sleep. So I don't know if we didn't need sleep, maybe this hormone thing wouldn't actually happen. I don't know. But your hunger is also regulated by your brain, things that are happening in your brain. So in your hypothalamus, it uses a chemical messenger called orexins, 
which promotes wakefulness. So Oryxin's like if you're trying to be alert or something and trying to do something, then your brain is using Oryxin's. But it also increases your food cravings. So just like whenever you're trying to pay attention to something, you're going to be more hungry. Now, the your metabolism actually drops a lot less than I expected um, when you're asleep. So your basal metabolism makes up about 80% of your metabolism in general, uh, just to maintain your basic, uh, the basic needs of your body. So that's 80%. And then the other 20% is your brain burning glucose. So your basal metabolic rate stays the same when you're asleep, like that doesn't change at all. But when you're asleep, uh, glucose utilization drops, uh, mainly during like the stages leading up to REM sleep. And then when you're awake, your glucose utilization goes up. So it works out to about a 15% reduction in metabolic rate when you're asleep, which I mean, it's something, but it's not nearly as drastic as I thought it would be. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like a hibernation thing where it's like you use like 10% of the energy. But no, yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you, you still use 85% of the energy. So I wanted to see like how this affects me personally. So I looked at my own basal metabolic rate just based on like an equation that has like I input my age and my weight and stuff like that. So for me, while I'm asleep, I burn 74 calories per hour. When I'm awake, I burn 92 calories per hour. Now, that 92 calories per hour is only if I'm, like, sitting, doing nothing while I'm awake. I'm probably going to be a little more active when I'm awake, though. So even if I'm just doing, like, light activities, like cleaning the house or, like, doing office work or something, I'm going to burn around 280 calories per hour. So with eight hours of sleep, if, like, in a normal day with eight hours of sleep and light activity, I would burn 5,000 calories. But if I didn't need to sleep and I was just doing light activity activity all day for 24 hours, then I would burn 6,700 calories. So that's an extra 1,700 calories, which is like two extra meals in a day. So if you didn't sleep, people would be eating two extra meals, uh, which is a good amount. So it was like, okay, people are eating two extra meals. How is this going to affect like food production? Because as Marcus mentioned, we're already kind of struggling to feed people. So calorie intake is a 32% increase. So that means that crop production is going to need to increase by 32%. And we can't really like speed up like how fast the crop grows. So we're really going to have to just expand the amount of land that we're using for agriculture. That's really the only way to do it. So I looked at the U.S. specifically just because they're the largest exporter of food crop by value. So... Uh, the land usage of the U.S., I know Marcus gave numbers for the world. He said 40% of the world has, uses farming land. For the U.S., it's just 17% for agriculture. It's number three on the list that I found. Grasslands also was uh, 17%. They put that as number four, though. Number two was shrublands at 24%, and number one was forests at 27%. So theoretically, there is enough land for us to expand our farming, uh, we'll just have to destroy nature to do it. Oh, we're good at that. <laughs> yeah. So we'll probably, I mean, we can use a shrubland and we might need to cut down some trees and forests and stuff, uh, especially if like population is growing and stuff, which it is. So, Or if some like deer look at us weird and they deserve to have their homes destroyed. <laughs> sure. Make way for industry, Bambi. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to be cutting down trees, which brings me to my next issue, which is carbon cycles and CO2 emissions, because I I think the bigger concern is not the energy consumption in our body. It's the energy consumption that, like, society is using outside of our bodies. Because, like, if we're awake, then we're, we're using energy and we're not just lying there sleeping. So... The U.S. Energy Information Administration has this, like, real-time electric grid monitor thing that it, like, displays the electricity demand and generation in the U.S. in real time. So I looked up last Friday. I, I specifically chose Friday because I think it's a little different during the week than it is during the weekend because people behave a little different. But last Friday, well, actually, it doesn't really matter what day, but it shows, like, a pattern of obviously higher electricity generation during the day and less at night when people are asleep. And there's actually like a morning, what they call a morning ramp when people are waking up and then demand is high from around 8 a.m. to the evening. It peaks around like seven, six or 7 p.m. And then it drops again when people go to sleep. Now on a typical weekday at nighttime, I averaged sort of between like 8 a.m., or between uh, midnight and 8 a.m., the average electricity use is 358,000 megawatts, uh, megawatt hours. And during the day, it's 435,000 megawatt hours. So during the day, it's a 22% increase from the night. Now, the problem is that 60% of electricity production is actually sourced from things like natural gas, coal, and petroleum fuels. And all these things emit CO2 into the atmosphere. So if we're increasing all of our electricity, then we're also increasing our CO2 emissions. So how much energy in a normal day are we actually using just based on my average hourly rate things? So um, in the U.S., we use about 9.8 million megawatt hours just on a normal day. But if we're always awake, we're going to be using 10.5 million megawatts megawatt hours total so that's a seven percent increase in total electricity generation seven percent isn't that much of an increase but it is still an increase and like we are already struggling with like co2 emissions and stuff like that so that in combination with like non-electricity related fuel consumption like driving cars and like gas heating and stuff like that and in combination with us cutting down all the trees to make farms, that's not good. That combo is not good. And starting with the fact that we're already screwed. <laughs> yeah, we're, we've already screwed ourselves before this even happened. We're going to have a very big climate change issue unless we like implement some laws or something. So I think what's going to happen is that if nobody can sleep, or no, if no one has to sleep, we're going to make a law that has like minimal activity levels and energy consumption and emissions. And someone is going to develop like some pill that artificially induces sleep anyway, uh, just to keep us under the numbers that we need. And we'll just sleep anyway, (laughs) even though we don't need to, because we will need to, to save the world, (laughs) save the planet, knock yourself unconscious. (laughs) Exactly. Ben, what did you do? So I looked at what if people did not have to breathe? This is a, a kind of interesting question in, in different ways than, than yours, your guys were, because a lot of yours 
at least a, a portion of yours was related to time saving, right? Like these are things you have to do that take up time that you can really drastically change how you live your life by not having to eat or drink or sleep. Breathing is something we kind of just do, right? It doesn't take any, I mean, it can take effort if you're, you know, like sick or something, but it's not something you have to think about. It's not something you, something you have to go out of your way to do. It's something you just do naturally. So really the answer to this is not anything related to day-to-day -day things. It's definitely much more big picture stuff. And one thing that I did realize very early on that is pretty relevant currently is that it would cut down pretty heavily on diseases because most diseases are either spread through the air or through droplets. And those droplets are from respiration. So one very nice thing, if we don't have to breathe, is that the only diseases that would be a problem would be things that are animal or foodborne or like bodily fluid-borne. And all of those are much, much easier to avoid than breath. I can tell you there's definitely not many foodborne diseases because I was hoping that would be an answer for a part of my answer, but it was not. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're, they're definitely, they're around, but they're not, they're certainly not as bad as like droplet and airborne diseases. No, number two was the, like the number two disease was the people that die from salmonella, which is not many. <laughs> right, exactly. So we'd have less disease, so that's cool, but that's obviously not that fruitful of an answer topic. So if we can't get over anything, you know, any big like current life changes, what about going places we couldn't go before where are places where we were limited by not being able to breathe um so the first thing i thought of well not actually but the first thing i looked into was caves is that a problem are there you know these big cave networks that we know about that we can't go into because there's you know deposits of, of bad air in there that we can't it just becomes way too dangerous to go into and the answer is not really it turns out bad air is really not it can be a problem in, in some caves, um, generally like tropical caves. You can get buildup of CO2 or sometimes methane, uh, mostly due to either some kind of, of bacteria that's, that's there or, or animal activity or things like that. But generally caves will have multiple entrances. They'll have conduits and things like that, that, that give really good airflow. So usually because of that airflow, you don't have bad air problems in caves um, that's not really our limiting factor ever there's actually research well i say there's research there are quote-unquote doctors who say that going in caves can be good for people who have asthma or allergies or things like that to, to treat those sorts of of conditions because of the humidity in the caves and um the lack of allergens and there's apparently in uh germany and austria there are oh what do they call it speleotherapy facilities which are basically just caves you go in and breathe i don't know to treat asthma and stuff like that uh there have been studies that have shown no actual real proof this actually works but who knows it's a thing people do but doctors just say it anyway <laughs> yeah who knows it it's something that came around like around world war world war ii and i think no one ever just really bottom look into it too much who knows <laughs> Plus, the, the caves also got leeches in them for some easy bloodletting. I mean, that's just going to cure that's going to cure your other diseases right there. There you go. Something's going to get cured. So really, in terms of caves, there's not much there. We don't go into slash live in caves because going into and living in caves has other problems that are not air related. So let's let's move past that. Let's look at water. Obviously, you cannot breathe water. So that limits a lot of things we can do in water. And not having to breathe will solve some of our problems with being able to live underwater, I guess. 
And some of the problems that you have when say diving are actually going to be solved by this. A lot of these are coming up because you have to breathe compressed air and that compressed air contains nitrogen. So for example, the bends, which is kind of the most common issue you hit while diving is when you're breathing in this compressed air uh, under pressure, that nitrogen starts getting stored in your body's tissue. And if you come back up at a measured pace, if you do what you're supposed to do and sort of take your time on the way back up, it sort of goes back into your lungs and you breathe it out and you're fine. When you come up too quickly, that forms bubbles, which will cause tissue damage, nerve damage. And if they form in your brain, they can paralyze you or, or kill you. There's also nitrogen narcosis, which is if you dive too deep, um, that nitrogen can build up in your brain and cause a feeling similar to drunkenness. And this is a direct quote I saw. Uh, you might make poor decisions, such as taking out your regulator because you think you can breathe underwater. <laughs> but we can't breathe underwater. <laughs> but we can, right? So, so, and and this is only happening because of the nitrogen and that compressed air mixture. So, this would not be a problem. And on that one in particular, you're probably thinking, "Well, wow, that sounds really bad. It must happen really deep." That starts happening when you you're diving around a hundred feet underwater. Maybe that's why the that's why that's all the deep sea fish look so weird because everyone's so drunk down there. <laughs> right, yeah. And this is the real problem is that even though we don't have to breathe, when you go underwater, the the pressure goes up really really fast. So every 33 feet you go underwater, the atmospheric pressure goes up an entire another atmosphere's worth of pressure. So that that builds up very very quickly, and that takes us to the other pressure related danger that you get when when diving which is barotrauma which is just there are parts for a body that have air in them most obviously our lungs which i'm guessing is not really a problem anymore but also your inner ear your sinuses um your your digestive tract all have air in them and when the pressure builds up those tissues can be damaged or rupture which in all those cases is really bad <laughs> It's not good. <laughs> I'm not going to go into detail on that because it's kind of terrifying. I also saw something about apparently back in the days when they had like the big, you know, the big like metal diving helmets. There was this issue where if the, the tube had an issue and the valve that went between like the breathing tube and the helmet wasn't correctly set up to not allow air to go back up the tube. If there was an issue, what could happen was there would be a, an issue with the tube. And the pressure would try to equalize up the tube and the diver will be sucked up into their helmet, which is exactly as bad as that sounds. Ugh. Yeah. Diving is terrifying. I never want to do it anymore. I never wanted to do it. I kind of want to do it still. Anyway, so there is some stuff we could do with shallower water. So technically, the, the average depth of a lake is around 10 meters or 33 feet, which is the, where we're getting like one extra atmosphere of pressure, which is... Not great, but, you know, certainly adaptable, livable. You're not going to have like a problem there. The problem is lakes only make up about 2.8% of the Earth's surface, which is like 1.6 million square miles, which is about six Texases. So technically, that's a decent amount of extra, like, room to put people, but not that much compared to the scale of the planet. And you couldn't use it for farmland or anything because it's all still water. So, and obviously there would be a lot of ecological impacts of that. So we shouldn't live in lakes just in general. So water also kind of a dead end. I guess you can, it's, you know, you can free dive more easily, who cares, but not actually useful. So all that leaves us now with is space. Clearly you can't just go float around in space without a spacesuit. There's cold and pressure and, you know, or I guess lack of pressure. 
And, you know, obviously that's not going to work. But one, it definitely helps with getting to space. Oxygen is heavy and we don't have good ways to um, to produce oxygen in space right now. We have some things we can do with uh, hydrolysis and, and things like that. But there's just no way to produce enough um, oxygen to even support like the astronauts in the International Space Station right now. Right now, they are constantly being shipped up new tanks of oxygen to, you know, keep them alive. So obviously that doesn't have, have to happen when you are sending a shuttle or anything up into space. You don't have to include oxygen there and that'll save weight, which is obviously very important for achieving space flight. But all in all, it's kind of small potato stuff. But the one place where we can actually maybe, maybe help things out is terraforming. There are really two key things that terraforming does, right? So one is obviously make a breathable atmosphere so that life can exist without having to have external oxygen sources. The other thing it does is make the temperature high enough to support life because on a planet without an atmosphere, you're usually going to wind up because you don't have those greenhouse gases to trap in heat, which is a very, very, you know, unlivably cold situation. And the difficulty in terraforming is not getting that warm atmosphere. If we just want to make Mars hot, we can apparently just, assuming there is enough like CO2 resources on the planet, which there may or may not be, it's not clear. We could do that in about a hundred years just by releasing a bunch of CO2 and warming up the planet. That's not quick, but it's definitely relatively fast. The problem is in order to actually support life currently, we also have to get the oxygen and nitrogen that we would need in the the you know the air to allow us to live. Oxygen, you can, you know, plant plants, do things like that. You know, there's there's ways to get oxygen from CO2 pretty easily, obviously. Nitrogen is actually the big the big issue because really what you need is basically to pull atmosphere from or atmosphere, pull nitrogen from like Jupiter's atmosphere and bring it there, which is not currently possible. But if we don't have to breathe and we just have to make it hot enough to live, that is something that we could accomplish, hopefully, just with what's currently on Mars. So I guess overall takeaway is that if we didn't have to breathe, we could technically within, I'm going to say, a few hundred years, maybe live on Mars, which is something, and also not be sick. So that's also something. You know what else you can do if you if you don't have to breathe? You can enter an Abercrombie store. <laughs> <laughs> wow how long have you been waiting to say that joke <laughs> literally the whole time Ranzo. i kind of figured that was the case so that's what i got awesome now what if we didn't have to do all three of these things we'd be invincible it would be way easier to live on mars <laughs> uh, all right with that we are going to hop over to our would you rather question ben are you ready for would you rather sure would you rather enter a boxing match with no gloves or a soccer game with no shoes? Huh. All right. In this hypothetical, I am just entering as myself, not as someone who is trained in doing one of these things, right? Uh, yes. Okay. What's the competition? <laughs> That's also an important question. <laughs> um, I would say someone of similar skill level. Okay. All right, Ben, you're up against a potato. What do you do? So here's the here's the thing <laughs> about boxing is that boxing gloves, I believe, 
actually in some way like a boxing glove somewhat cushions the impact like they are weighty which isn't great but i believe that part of the reason that boxing is more dangerous within terms of like head trauma than say mixed martial arts is that there's a lot more like sub concussive force applied to the head and it's definitely worse just getting a like a bunch of gloved hits to your head that don't actually knock you out than like one good punch that knocks you out so in some ways you kind of have an advantage not wearing boxing gloves well, i assume you're not a long-term boxer you're only in one boxing match right but but like it's still yeah it's still it's easier to knock someone out with one punch i think with just a bare fist than with a boxing glove yeah don't quote me on that so you kind of have advantage. However, you still have to box someone. And I would r- way rather run around shoeless on a <laughs> soccer field than have to box someone. Yeah, it's like, it's like would, I get, would I rather get punched for five minutes or run for 90 minutes? Right. I've run for 90 minutes before. I can do it again. <laughs> I haven't. I don't think I can do it once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't either. I will say, uh, like, a fully inflated soccer ball is, like, very hard it would not be fun to kick like kicking a barefoot counterpoint if you are playing soccer and one of the players in your team is not wearing shoes are you gonna pass the ball to them because i don't think you are <laughs> <laughs> just play just play so you don't just play like the quiet kid on the team where you don't try not to get passed to the whole right time. yeah right like you can make it work wait is it is it easier is it easier to get thrown out of a soccer game or out of a boxing match oh probably well okay so you're probably gonna have to like do some aggressive tackling in a soccer match and that might be rough going at someone's you know spike cleats with your bare feet boxing match you just go for the low blow yeah you go for the low blow and try not to get punched on the way in although i guess if you just try to like i guess you just run up to someone and just like kick them in the stomach (laughs) i think that's a red card i think if you do that in boxing it's still it's still not allowed, but I don't think they kick you out of the game out of the match. They probably would if you. There are things you can do to get thrown out with like one action. I'm just pretty sure that against any like semi competent boxer, you get knocked the hell out before you can do one of those things. Yeah, one of, in order to do one of those things, you have to get close. Right. But if you just go and like just start boxing the ref, like you just square up immediately towards <laughs> yeah, the referee, that. Probably, that would probably get you kicked out. I still don't know if you would be able to like get close enough to him to not get punched on the way in by the other boxer. Well, where is the ref usually standing? He stands away from like he's he's in view of but away from the fighters, right? So like if you if you move towards him, he moves away. He'd be yeah, he'd be avoiding you. So you'd have to chase him down. <laughs> yeah. And while you're doing that, the other guy's just trying to punch you in the side of the head. But you also have to chase down the soccer ref. He's much further away, and also he's probably better at running. <laughs> Are there, there's probably there's more than one soccer ref though, right? Um, could you just like truck a linesman with that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like they don't move. It'd be great if this was tennis. There's ball boys everywhere, <laughs> right? I mean, let's put it this way: you can get out of a boxing match much faster, but the way you're getting out is probably like gonna hurt. <laughs> gonna hurt, yeah. I, I know personally where, where my opinion lies, but I don't know about you guys. I, I think I, I think I've decided. Chris? Um, I haven't decided yet, but I'll decide last minute. Last second. All right. I am going to go with the soccer match. Yeah, I, I too am going to go with the soccer match. I think, one, 
if we if we don't cheese it and you have to actually play out the thing, I would rather be involved in a thing that where I don't get punched. And really, it's just the risk of getting punched a lot that I really don't enjoy. I also feel like if you are in a soccer match and you don't have shoes on, you're going to be turned into some sort of weird, tragic story. Whereas in a boxing match, if you show up without gloves and then just get knocked the hell out, people are going to laugh at you a lot on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing, it's just really, it's more about the difference in the sports than the difference in the hypothetical, where, like, Ben, if you just were, like, came, hey, Marcus, you want to go boxing tomorrow? I'd be like, oh, hell no. But if you're like, hey, you want to go play soccer? I'd be like, well, it's probably cold outside, so also no, but I would consider it more. Right. <laughs> hmm. Make a compelling argument, but I'm going to choose boxing anyway. <laughs> of course you are. So I set a similar skill level, so I'm fighting basically me. So He has it coming. <laughs> I think I can take myself. I think having no boxing gloves gives me an advantage. So if I'm, because I can like knock them out faster. So I think if he's a similar skill level to me, then I just have a, an advantage over him. I guess that's, I guess that's fair. You're still going to get punched. <laughs> probably i'm still gonna get punched but i don't know i'm gonna win <laughs> but so yeah Fair but so enough. is that idiot in tw- but you should see the other guy yeah <laughs> and so with that that brings us to the end here where i do the stuff where i ask you guys the listener to do things for us because of the kindness in your hearts um, and because you enjoy this content and that's how this relationship works so if you enjoy the show, go to www.patreon.com slash absurdhypotheticals and become a patron. Support the show directly with just one singular hard-earned dollar. You get access to all our bonus content that we post specifically, exclusively, specially for our patrons, our wonderful hypothetical pals. If you want to help in a non-financial way, you can leave us a review. Leaving us a review on your podcast player is awesome and great and um, helps grow the show or... If you want to be directly things from your mind palace coming into the show, send us a question. Just shoot us an email, absurdhypotheticals at gmail.com. And if you send us a question, we'd love to get a list of your questions, and you might see it on the show, and we spend time answering it in stupid ways, and you'll be like, oh my god, these guys are idiots, why didn't they just do this? But it'll be your question, so you can be doubly frustrated. And then we'll answer it like 20 episodes later, not realizing that we re-answered it. Speaking of re-answering questions... Everyone is welcome to join us next week where we do a throwback episode. So we've done a couple of these before. This will be our third. But the throwback is where we go back into the archives, find questions where either we didn't like what we did the first time or have some new thoughts or an interesting twist. So we're going to do a grab bag style where we're all going to pick an old question and do a fresh new modern answer to it. So we'll see you then. Modern. Modern.